For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's episode with the brilliant Nina Power, I just want to remind you all about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and book articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone anywhere can read us. We're really grateful for that. If you don't yet give to Spiked, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. And now on with the show. For me, there is nothing that is more important than the ability and the capacity to think freely, which everybody has. One of the most amazing things about being alive is that you can change your mind. You know, I've changed my mind on things through thinking about it, through evidence, through reason, through discussion. And I would like that to be the situation that everyone is in, where they can think for themselves and defend their own thinking. And I think we see a lot of brainwashing (laughs) going on. And I think a lot of people are going to look back on the past few years with a kind of horror. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Nina Power. Nina is a cultural critic, a social theorist and a philosopher. She writes on a wide range of topics from film to feminism, from art to politics, Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Philosopher's Magazine, Film Quarterly, Spiked, and in numerous other publications. Nina has taught at various universities in the UK. She is the author of One Dimensional Woman, which was published in 2009. Her latest book is published by Penguin, and it's titled What Do Men Want? Masculinity and Its Discontents. So Nina, let's talk about your new book, your brilliant new book, which is called What Do Men Want? masculinity and its discontents. And I suppose I want to start off by asking you a fairly broad question to try and get into some of these issues. I first encountered you, I suppose, about a decade ago, 10 years or so, when you were a feminist voice, you were a critic of many aspects of contemporary feminism. You were known for your book, One Dimensional Woman, which uh, did very well. Um, You've now written this new book, which is very sympathetic to men and particularly to some of the virtues of masculinity, such as uh, honour, loyalty and courage. 
And it's very sympathetic to the idea that we need to repair the relationship between men and women in the 21st century. So I want to start off by asking you, do you think your thinking has changed on these issues? Or do you see what you're currently writing as a continuation of what you had done with One Dimensional Woman and with some of the arguments you'd been making previously? Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair question. Um, I actually do see it as part of a continuum. I think what's happened is my position has more or less stayed the same, but other parts of the left have gone insane, right? <laughs> so the left that I feel like I'm still a part of is is um, you know, dialectical, forgiving, thoughtful, nuanced, humorous, you know, recognises kind of the absurdity of, of existence and the fact that men and women are both kind of partners in this project or this game, you know, and, and that's how I felt in the 90s. I think the, the 90s were in retrospect quite a, a strangely, um, I don't know, open time. I think people were open to disagreement and difference. And in fact, those things were kind of cool and interesting. Um, and I think, you know, as, as we've seen, there's been a kind of lockdown on on humour and, and nuance and uh, and so on. So I, as I said in the introduction to the book, the original book, The One Dimensional Woman, was actually, I mean, it's more of a pamphlet, really, mm. was, uh, was, was trying to be funny, but it wasn't really about men. It was about the kind of feminisation of the economy and the way in which jobs and particularly agency jobs were being kind of branded towards women. And it was a kind of summary of like actually the Blair era mm. um, in retrospect. And I think in the meantime, you know, there's there's been so much kind of uh, criticism of men, so many generalizations, so many attacks. And I suppose the older I get, the, the, the more, I don't know, complicated life becomes. But it's very obvious to me in my relationships with my male friends and men I love and my father and my brother, that the kinds of things that are being said about men are just simply not true. And I don't think they're they're true for most women. You know, and I speak as, as a woman who has relationships with men and, and has lots of male friends. And I, I think that's kind of, you know, a common position to be in. And we live in this kind of mixed world. We encounter the opposite sex all the time. And I suppose I was reacting to these kind of more polemical claims, you know, these kind of really, uh, I think, disingenuous and uh, kind of um, unfair claims about, about that are being made about men. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about men and how Nina Power views men. <laughs> so this book has a wonderful opening paragraph, which is men and women exist, which in itself is a revolutionary statement these days, which we'll come back to shortly. Men and women exist. Occasionally, we even like each other. And I really like that opening. And it kind of drags the reader in because you immediately know that you're going to get something different. You're going to get something different from... The, uh, the man, I hate to sound Daily Mail, but the man bashing that you do often see in contemporary discussion. And one of the things you talk about in the book is the notion that the quite commonly stated idea in certain circles today that masculinity is a problem. And the way you put it is that masculinity is seen as being rotten to the core. It must be thrown away and men must accept that they are at fault. So I wanted to ask you, in relation to that turn against masculinity or that uh, that view of masculinity as toxic, toxic masculinity is a phrase that that you cover very well in the book. How do you, where do you see that turn against masculinity as having come from? And what do you think is at its core? It's often presented to us as a form of feminism, but you obviously understand it in a very different way. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's something strange has happened on this point. I think sometimes the second wave of feminism, which I I relate very strongly to, and it, it's I I think there's still there's still some way to go in that project. I think it's a genuinely progressive project, but sometimes there are sort of stereotypes of the second wave as being kind of um, man hating. And, and they actually weren't because I think uh, the second wave was actually about liberating boys and girls and men and women from the, the strictures of gender. And gender here is understood as kind of social expectation and a kind of narrow set of roles. Um, and actually it was about freeing both men and women, boys and girls from those roles. So actually it was progressive for everybody. But now I think there's a sort of a sort of fake form of feminism. I talked about other fake forms of feminism in the first book, but I didn't see this one coming, which basically gives women a permission to hate men. So mm. actually plays into the stereotype, but somehow a, a kind of a weird liberal mainstream feminism has taken up this kind of resentful, hateful, generalizing attitude towards men. And somehow that's okay. Um, and I think the internet has kind of encouraged this um, and, and you know, permitted the kind of attacks on individual men for, for bad behavior and so on. So I think that's something something strange has happened there. And I don't, I don't regard liberal mainstream feminism as feminism at all. I think it's regressive and uh, encourages resentment. And I talk a lot in the book about this getting away from the idea of a zero-sum game. Yeah. You know, the idea that if women benefit, men lose or vice versa. Um, and I think the only people who benefit from this image of everything as a zero-sum game um, are actually very malign forces, right? It's, uh, it encourages feelings of, of dispossession, alienation, and so on. And I think if all masculinity is perceived to be bad or negative, this basically says to men, there's no room for improvement, right? You're just basically condemned. Um, and I think, again, this is an absolutely uh, horrific thing to say, um, especially to young men, that the only thing that they can feel is guilty. And I think this actually uh, creates some of the violence that we would all like to see diminished because it creates absolute atomization and alienation um, instead of the possibility of, of belonging and improving as we all can. So on on the issue of toxic masculinity, I mean, that phrase is everywhere these days. I mean, it's used by everyone from feminist writers right through to corporations who want to sell a product on the back of changing men and improving men. Toxic masculinity is taken for granted as a as an accurate description of certain masculine male behaviours. And you talk in the book about how it's become this kind of bizarre spectrum where almost every form of male behaviour can be located somewhere on the, on the spectrum of toxic masculinity. And it covers everything from men talking over women, you know, mansplaining, a phrase I've always disliked just because it doesn't flow very well, um, right from mansplaining through to acts of murder or murderous rage or, or genuine violence. So toxic masculinity is seen to cover all those different elements. And you can see this in the way in which if you look at groups like everyday sexism, for example, or some of those other groups that collect together women's experiences of alleged uh, sexism or toxic masculinity, they will often include everything from being grabbed in the street, which we can all agree is something that shouldn't happen to uh, you know the waiter come into your table and gives he gives the bill to the man rather than to you or he presumes you want a glass of wine rather than a pint of beer um so it's this almost absurd definition of every form of behavior and interaction has been 
potentially an expression of toxic masculinity. How do you think that such a kind of intimate and constant association of masculinity with with toxicity, how do you think that came about and why do you think that in particular is a problem? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a problem when we kind of conflate everything, as, as you suggest. Mm. I think this is part of a broader problem in social life where the move towards kind of making everybody safe and comfortable as if, you know, the person we most need to protect is the person, a fantasy image of the person who's offended by everything. Yeah. Um, but obviously, if we go in that direction, we're going to live in a very, very closed world, you know. Uh, and I think we've seen that tendency also in the last two years in relation to COVID, you know, that there's not been a real uh, discussion about risk um, and about safety and about all of these things and about vulnerability. There's just been more or less a kind of assumption um, that we all want to live in a world in which nobody dies and nobody suffers, which is impossible, of course. Um, so I think as a culture, we've got a broader problem, which is to do with any kind of upset or suffering or antagonism or anything that, that makes people feel bad, uh, which we can't avoid. And to be alive is to suffer in, and is to take risks. So I think we need a, a more adult discussion about that. And and also from a feminist perspective, you know, I don't want women to be seen as victims. Yeah. You know, that puts us back with, with children and, and animals, you know, and yeah. <laughs> frankly, I like being an adult. I, I enjoy <laughs> the complexity of, of social life. And that includes antagonism, disagreement, flirtation, mistakes, you know, and I think everybody makes mistakes. We've, we've entered into a kind of weird post-Christian culture, which has kind of you know, kept the bad bits of religion and got rid of the good bits, which would involve, you know, understanding that we're all flawed. We've all made, we all make mistakes. We constantly transgress, but we can also forgive. We can forgive ourselves. And I, and I think it's an absolute mistake to, let's say, you know, conflate a man, not realizing, not reading the room or whatever, you know, maybe talking a bit too much or I don't know, um, trying to kiss a woman who isn't interested, right? These are not the same kinds of things as, you know, grabbing a stranger in the street or, you know, or murdering somebody, right? And the, the idea that all of these things exist on a spectrum of, you know, a narrow spectrum and they're all bad and they're all abuse is, is, um, idiotic, right? It presupposes a complete lack of judgment on the part of, um, everybody, frankly. Um, and I think we all have to get better at negotiating the reality of social life. Otherwise, the alternative is just staying at home, which we've done <laughs> enough of, right? So, you know, I think it's it's about being adult, and not, you know, I'm very uh, fond of Camille Pallia, who talks has talked a lot about risk and adulthood, and you know, all of these things. So I think we need to sort of go to go there. <laughs> I think that's a, a, a such an important point which you make, and which Camille Pallia and, and a, a small band of people have made, which is that the one of the knock on effects of of this pseudo-feministic ideology, particularly the kind of anti-masculine outlook, one of the knock-on effects is not simply the demonization of men, but also the inf infantilization of women. So women are yep. seen as being incapable in comparison with men of negotiating the public sphere, of negotiating social interactions. And you can see this on campuses in particular, where women are encouraged to you know, in those surveys of sexual abuse or sexual assault, they're often encouraged to record everything from the unwanted come on in the bar through to genuine assault. And it creates that impression, doesn't it, that that life is uniquely dangerous for women. It's every corner you walk around, there could be something terrible awaiting you. Every man you encounter might have ulterior, dark ulterior motives. 
What do you think that does to women's sense of themselves in the world? And and also, why do you think feminists cannot see that as a betrayal of the things that they would have fought for in the past, especially in the second wave? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, let's be real. Those, those very occasional, very horrific um, assaults and attacks on women do stick in the mind, right? Yeah. They do really happen. Sarah Everard really was murdered by a policeman pretending to use COVID mm. legislation, right? These are like unbelievably, unbearably horrific things, right? So it's not that these things don't happen, right? They absolutely do. They're rare, but they should be, you know, absolutely understood and, and punished. And in a way, precisely so that they can be prevented, right? So for example, if the colleagues of the police officer had, you know, who, who already knew he was a, a wrong in, right? If they had yeah. taken charge of that situation and taken responsibility for a man, another man, you know, as a group of men, that could have been avoided, right? So, you know, part of what I suggest is that men need to see each other as part of a class more often, just as women are often taught to. And I think that's a better way of preventing these kind of horrific things. They might not be completely avoidable, right? We we do live in a, a dangerous world, but at the same time, people should not be, especially women, you know, so inhibited by this fear that's kind of generated by the media that they stop living. You know, we have we have to live. And I think we live in a very, very paradoxical culture that on the one hand, like I use this word, um, puritanical, yeah. which is a combination of puritanical and prurient. Yeah. So on the one hand, we're encouraged to be kind of hedonistic and consumers and, you know, drink and, you know, uh, sort of be sexy and promote an image of oneself as this kind of sexual being. But on the other hand, um, if somebody makes a mistake or if that goes wrong, even minorly, then the punishments are, are kind of absurd and potentially really uh, destructive. You know, people naming, you know, supposed abusers online and so on, you know, and, and people have committed suicide as a consequence of these forms of, of social shaming. So uh, again, I think there's something gone very wrong in this combination of this sort of almost like inability to make adult decisions or to accept the consequences when things go a bit wrong, you know, and I think women should be taught to be able to say, like, in a more lighthearted way, like, oh, that's not okay. And men should also be able to take it more like, you know, people make mistakes, they misread situations, everybody has, you know, and if you speak to anybody about like embarrassing moments, everybody's got loads, mm -hmm. right? You know, whether they've said the wrong thing or they've misread a situation or they've like tried it on with someone who's not interested. And, you know, and that's par for the course. So, you know, if if women are going into sort of situations like, I don't know, all this stuff around Hollywood, it's like all dating apps where men are looking for sex. It's like use some common sense. I mean, what do you think these situations are really about? <laughs> you know, and if you don't want to get involved in sex parties or having sex with lots of men, you don't have to. Like this is one of the wonderful things about liberal culture. You can you can decide not to. Um, so I think people maybe need a bit more wisdom. They might need to listen to older people more. I think mm. we also don't listen enough to our elders. I talk about our ancestors in the book. But, you know, like... Your, your parents or your grandparents, you know, they have things to tell you about how the world works, you know, and young people are not the uh, kind of apex of intelligence in some ways. 
This podcast is all about the ideas that shape our world, the big ones, the bad ones, and where they all come from. If you'd like to go even deeper into the history of ideas and expand your knowledge further, there is no better place to start than Wondrium. Wondrium has mind-blowing premium content covering virtually any topic you can think of. Science, history, music, language, travel, religion, health, business, hobbies, culture, and so much more. For instance, I've been watching a program called The Modern Political Tradition, Hobbes to Habermas, and you can stream it too on Wondrium. It is a fantastic program that will help you understand how we arrived at the liberal democratic society we live in today. It's presented by the brilliant Professor Lawrence Cahoon, who takes you through hundreds of years of the ideas that have made and remade our world. It covers the development of everything from nationalism and the first debates around capitalism in the 19th century right up to the modern day with episodes on feminism, environmentalism and identity politics. Wondrium's teachers, professors and experts will inspire you to keep on learning new things every day. It is so easy to watch and listen to Wondrium. I log onto their website to watch on my computer and then I pick up where I left off using the Wondrium app on my phone when I'm out and about. Wondrium really is the ideal learning companion. So if you're curious about the world and want to keep learning more, I want you to sign up for Wondrium today. And right now, my listeners get a special free 22-day trial membership to celebrate the new year. But you need to sign up through my special URL, wondrium.com slash Brendan. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Brendan. Wondrium.com slash Brendan. I really agree with that. And it's a difficult point for a man to try to make. But one of the things that did strike me about the Me Too era, which I want to ask you about now, is that there was a generational difference in some of this. So you had older women like Catherine Deneuve and Anne Robinson in the UK and um, a few others who were saying, well, listen, why did you go to his hotel room? And it was de- these comments were depicted as victim blaming and so on, but actually they were very often expressions of common sense. And uh, having that awareness that if you're a 25-year-old woman and a 55-year-old man asks you up to his hotel room, it's good to be aware that that's probably going to be a sexual situation. And if you don't want to be involved in it, then you should absent yourself from it as soon as possible. You know, these are not sexist comments to make. And as you say, older generations often have that experience and that wisdom, and they can impart that to younger people. But of course, younger people are often discouraged from listening to boomers these days. But on the on the Me Too stuff, I wanted to ask you specifically about that, because it's a very good part of the book. And you describe Me Too as, as the terror phase of the sexual revolution. And it's almost like uh, which I think is a really good way of describing it. And it's, you say it's almost like a kind of collective walk of shame where society is uh, making amends for the excesses of the sexual revolution through this very public shaming of men, certain men for having done particular things. So it's still going on in in various different ways, this kind of women stating their experiences and men often being crushed as a consequence. And that can include men who are accused of serious things like rape, right through to men who simply, Hollywood men who simply were bad at dating. So now at this point, what impact do you think Me Too had 
on the kinds of issues that you're writing about? And how do you see its impact rippling through society in the coming years? Yeah, I think there's a very big question here about technology and the attention economy. I think one one thing that happened was that I think people worked out that they could get more attention for being a certain kind of victim than they than they enjoyed the attention of of a particular person or a man. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there was a kind of weird flip over, and I talk about almost like this um, resentment towards the pre-recorded history. So th- there's something about me too, which is to do with. Um, a kind of hatred of the past for not having been recorded, which is a slightly strange point to make maybe, but I think, you know, there's something, the technology itself has created this kind of surveillance, you know, feeling basically that everything should be recorded. So the date is on the app. You know, I talk about this idea, which is not yet implemented, but the idea of like consent on the blockchain, the idea that you can record every single encounter, which again is just a kind of horrific uh, idea to me. And I, I think... The point about the sexual revolution is, you know, we're 60 years off after the beginning. Somebody like Harvey Weinstein, um, by the way, people don't talk enough about the role of drugs in mm. the whole um, situation. I mean, the reason why people are going to hotel rooms is also to take the best coke in Hollywood. That's kind of covered up in a lot of these stories. I think Weinstein was a scapegoat. He was, he's like the Robespierre of the sexual revolution, right? He, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm not justifying anything he did, although there's some very interesting articles there's a brilliant one by Matthew uh, Schmitz about the whole Weinstein case which is extremely balanced actually uh, and doesn't go down the let's let's blame him let's let's scapegoat him for for everything um, I think uh, Weinstein took the the hit he took the rap for a lot of awful behavior and I think a lot of men were sort of going few at least now we've got this kind of physically unattractive you know person that can be sort of like socially murdered yeah so I mean that goes along with the kind of the terror phase you know it's always like the people who took advantage of the revolution in this case the sexual revolution who who stand to be the most punished just as guillotine was executed by his own device so I I think the serious point about the sexual revolution and where we're at now is that we need to have a collective adult discussion about what it was and what it meant and what we like about it and what we don't, right? Because I think it's clear that there are forms of excess that are kind of encouraged by parts of the culture, which actually aren't good for people. I don't think it's good for people's souls to have lots and lots of really anonymous sex with other people. Maybe that's my own moralism. I think it kind of it destroys the possibility in, to some degree of um, taking a risk in another way, which is to say to commit to somebody. You know, if you can just change somebody and dump someone and, you know, then you're not actually taking the risk in the sense of, of being loyal or doing a kind of project with someone, like whether it's marriage or a kid. I think we're maybe the pendulum is kind of swinging back a bit. And I, I feel really, really bad for lots of young people, so millennials who are really struggling to have enough money to kind of get married and have children. And I think actually now in some ways, settling down is more subversive than being a kind of lifelong (laughs) player and consumer. And I think a lot of people quite rightly want to have a a marriage and and children. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's absolutely beautiful. And there's, there must be ways in which that, that is supported, I think. Otherwise, we're going to end up again in this kind of completely isolated, atomized situation where nobody is really with anyone and or nobody yeah. particularly happy. That's a really important point. And, and you touch on a lot of this in the book as well, of course, which is the seeming contradiction that 
everyone is encouraged, and, and you sum it up well with your phrase "pro-ritanical," the mixture of puritanical yeah. and prurient at the same time. And I think that's a good description of the society we live in. But it's almost like we live in a society in which everyone is encouraged to have lots of sex. And lots of people are having lots of sex and it's often very anonymous sex and done through apps and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, as we used to say in the old days. But at the same time, we seem to live in a post-sex age. Mm -hmm. And it's the kind of thing that Christopher Lash was commenting on in the culture of narcissism 40 years ago. He talked about how you have this strange situation where the more that sex becomes divested of its emotional intensity and, 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 and any sense of commitment and loyalty to another person, the more sex as an act becomes an avoidance of human connection rather than an engagement with human connection. And I think that's that was a very good description of where society was going at that point. And we seem to have gone even further in, the, in that direction, where the more sex people have, the less emotional human connection they seem to have with with other people and one of the things you talk about in relation to the post-sex age is the way in which sexuality has become virtualized it's often very screen-based you talk about people being in relationships with themselves often through the mechanism of pornography and um I wanted to ask you about pornography in particular and how you think it feeds into some of these issues. I guess my a question I've asked people before is it's a bit of a chicken and egg question. Do you think pornography is the cause of some of the breakdown in the relationship between men and women and the importance of sex in human relations? Or do you think it's a beneficiary of that culture of atomization where more and more people are looking for that kind of virtualized sexual gratification in the absence of the kind of connections we would have had in the past. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think it's I think it's dialectical. <laughs> <laughs> I think at this point, I in my forties, the the position I've reached on on this is is maybe um, a bit complex in certain ways. I, I I think ultimately the widespread availability of it, an infinite amount of porn, often extremely hardcore. HD porn and so on is is ultimately um, profoundly detrimental to people's relationship to themselves and to each other. I think that it absolutely destroys people's imagination. Ultimately, mm. my 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 reason for for coming to the conclusion about pornography. I mean, aside from all of the the, the exploitative aspects and and the 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 way in which. Um, you know, a lot of women are taking drugs to make these films and the kind of, you know, the, the, the horrors of the production of, of, of pornography is the fact that it makes uh, fantasy, which I think is integral to um, our sense of self and our relation to other people, it kind of crushes that mm. capacity for imagination. And I, I think the wor a world in which we we think about people we know, we think about our dreams, we have um, fantasies that are based in real life is a much more beautiful life. So I think pornography is ultimately destructive. I, I obviously looked at young men who were addicted to pornography in their own self-understanding. I looked at the NoFap movement, which is sometimes now described as a hate movement, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. Um, where young men come together to try to stop watching pornography and to stop um, compulsively masturbating, you know, which I think are, again, completely socially destructive and they're destructive of people's sense of self. And I think this unreality of pornography is a, is a massive problem. 
you know, it's a problem for, for women, it's a problem for men. It makes actual sex with actual people seem like uh, some sort of um, old-fashioned yeah. alien thing. And I think the virtual has sent certain people down rabbit holes <laughs> as regards what they think they desire that, again, are just um, destructive of themselves and the people around them. Yeah, I think you talk a lot in the book about the virtual subcultures of our era. And I I must say, I find some of those subcultures quite worrying. Others I find a bit more heartening. I mean, the no fat movement, as an example, I'm sure there are some strange people in the no fat movement, but this idea that men are trying to use their willpower and their collective sense of wanting to do something better than wanking all day long, to be frank about it. I think that, you know, there are positive components to that, but of course it gets demonized and and presented as, as something problematic. But uh, in relation to that particular issue, before we move on to a few other things I want to ask you about, to what extent do you think the absence of moral judgment is a problem here? Now, of course, moral judgment has its downsides. I say this as someone who was brought up uh, as a Catholic and went to confession once a month and it was often an unpleasant experience and you could feel kind of morality breathing down your neck or moralism breathing down your neck, which is which is worse. But it does seem to me that the absence of moral judgment looks a bit like an, an, an enabler of some of the behaviours that we're talking about. So, for example, there are now health bodies, including NHS health bodies, that will talk about how healthy masturbation is and it's fine. And and there are self-guide books which will say that s- masturbation is sex with yourself and it's safer and more pleasurable than sex with someone else who might be unpredictable and 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 weird and strange. And of course, anyone who suggests that it's wrong for young people to go around bonking each other all the time will just instantly be seen as an old-fashioned Mary Whitehouse type, you know, too stiff, what's wrong with you? You're very boring. So... Do you think we need to reintroduce moral judgment or do you think there's something else that needs to come back into this discussion? Yeah, I think very complicated question. And, and you know, just as I'm very critical of, of the widespread, you know, availability of pornography, at the same time, I would defend artists' right to make extremely transgressive work, mm. right? So it, it's a very complicated question that is to, partly to do with judgment. Um, and, and of course, I'm not saying ban pornography, yeah. but I am saying that, that it has a de- detrimental effect in many, many, many cases. And I think uh, maybe what we're talking about is more the judgment than the morality. I think yeah. one of the issues is to do with what kind of creatures we are. Right. I think the sexual revolution and liberalism has pushed to extremes the idea that we can transform ourselves, that we can do anything we like to ourselves without consequence. And, you know, there's lots of people writing about transhumanism and all of these kind of projects, which suggest that we can, if you like, go beyond the human. And I, I don't think we can. I think we, we have this body where we're sexed as a man or a woman. We have to, in a way, learn to live with that. And it's not easy. And I think accepting that one is embodied is actually a kind of quite difficult process, but we should recognize it as such. And, and I think that collective understanding makes it easier. So you can see why moral systems come about, because obviously, if you have a, uh, a sense of what it is to be this kind of creature, then you can say that there are better and worse ways of living. So I think at the extremes, we've got the idea that you can, I don't know, eat however much you like and it's fine when it clearly isn't. I mean, it is obviously detrimental to your health or, you know, 
as as someone who's sort of struggled with with alcohol addiction in the past you know you, you live in a culture that's very encouraging of these things you know you have to actually take a step back and go what the hell you know this is actually really really bad for me and everyone around me you know and that does require judgment and taking responsibility which i i guess is not really encouraged so you know, I don't want to throw away all of the old values and virtues. I want to kind of bring them back in a new way. I think that we see it in the kind of trad movement and kind of people going back to church and actually wanting to find a partner or a wife or a husband in that environment, because actually going to church is now a marker of a certain kind of social status and self-respect. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, so I, again, it's pendulum swinging stuff, basically. And I think it, it, it potentially is now more subversive to look after yourself and stay healthy rather than just go down a sort of, you know, addictive liberal hellhole. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the m most striking aspects of the age we live in is that individuals very often have to discover their own sense of judgment and their own sense of purpose because society has effectively given up on providing people with the tools for doing that, and even with the idea that it's a good thing to do. So the, the way in which um, traditionalism has almost become a form of rebellion against the chaos and nihilism of contemporary society, I think is, is really interesting. Um, okay, I want to ask you about gender, which is obviously the most controversial topic of the 21st century for some bizarre reason. The idea of sex and gender, how they're different, and I want to also ask you about transgenderism too. And the first thing I want to ask you about is the way in which you talk about gender in the book, which I found incredibly clarifying, actually, and it helped me to work out some of my own thoughts. So you talk about how the meaning of gender or the view of gender has changed quite a lot in recent years. So gender used to be used as a term to describe something that was imposed from outside. Mm -hmm. So it was the external imposition of on, on boys to behave in a particular way or in gir on girls to behave in a particular way. So gender was seen as in some ways as an oppressive external force. And now increasingly it's seen as an internal phenomenon as you have an internal gender you have an internal gender expression and it's a very positive thing to externalize that through bodily modification or the way you dress or how you describe yourself so that seems to me to be actually an incredibly important shift and also one that's that captures a broader situation where progressive voices in particular have gone from being progressive i.e let's get beyond gender to being regressive in the sense of let's embrace gender as this thing which determines every aspect of our lives. So how did you get to that view on gender? What, what, what led you to that understanding? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I was, a, I was a teenager in the 1990s and I was in the countryside. But even then, like the, the second wave idea, like the idea that gender was sort of something to get rid of. And, and in fact, people should be encouraged to express themselves and have their whatever interests they like. You know, I mean, I was a tomboy. I, absolutely nobody had a problem with it whatsoever. I didn't wear a dress until I was 23. <laughs> I played Dungeons and Dragons with my male friends. Uh, you know, I was outside all the time, whatever. Like the, it was absolutely wonderful to have that freedom. And in retrospect, absolutely nobody cared. It was, it was not an issue at all that I was, you know, a, a girl or a, an, and a teenager who preferred um, so typically masculine things. Right. And that, that, that goes for philosophy as well, which is a very male <laughs> subject. So, 
so that was that was to my mind progressive you know and and that the same would go for you know boys at my school who were who were gay or coming to terms with their sexuality you know i i think it was a good time actually um to you know go through those things which are always difficult and i think again like adolescence and embodiment is is difficult for everyone you know it's puberty and and so on is 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 complicated it's you know uh, when you start to have awareness of yourself as a sexual being it's it's often you know really um difficult and painful so i think you know gender doesn't exist as a word in many languages right it was the invention of john money who's an extremely dubious character in any case i think the second wave perhaps made a mistake actually in using this word i think mm. we could have had the same conversation about how sex is real and that there's been expectations placed on uh, women and men, uh, which have uh, limited and inhibited them historically, um, and that we can actually move beyond that. And and this would be about the expression of character, you know. And I think people have forgotten the idea that people have personalities and character, and everyone is a kind of combination of different interests, some of which might have been seen as typically masculine and some of which might have been seen as typically feminine. But no one is a pure stereotype, right? So in that sense, we're all kind of non-binary, to use this, this word. <laughs> Um, but, you know, really, we're all individual, unique human beings who happen to have a sex. This regressive moment, you know, the idea that if you like a particular thing or, you know, that you must be that sex is very weird. And um, again, I didn't quite see that coming, <laughs> uh, during, you know, when I wrote my first thing in 2009. Yeah. I didn't expect things to go like this, I suppose. I I thought there'd be more kind of opening up of of the possibilities for behavior and expression and sexuality. And so I think it, it, it must be kind of tied to certain bigger, broader aspects, you know, which are to do with obviously identity and consumerism and how certain forms of insecurity and anxiety that we all experience as part of life have become kind of overcoded by these sorts of uh, categories somehow. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. I agree with you that the, the word gender is not a useful word and it's became, becoming less and less useful over time because mm. of the way in which it's understood these days. And I think you you're, you could be right that the second wave made a mistake in embracing that word in order to describe something that was no doubt real. But mm. reading your book, one thing that struck me is that one of the curious situations we find ourselves in is that gender is becoming essentialized. So you have this kind of inner gender, almost like a soul whereas sex is becoming relativized. So sex is, you know, you can be any sex you want. You can be born male and claim to be something else entirely. So it's this very strange situation where something which is essentialist, i.e. sex, and in my view also immutable, is seen as being quite fluid and weird and strange, whereas uh, gender is increasingly seen as this internal soul that no one is allowed to criticize and which is incredibly real and measurable on on you know pie charts and other scientific means and that seems very strange to me but, what, but one thing i wanted to talk to you about in relation to your book is that i think you make a very good argument that men and women are different 
And uh, you say that they are different in interestingly compatible ways. And I wanted to ask you if you say that it's not necessarily sexist or essentialist to say that, and I completely think that's true. But do you think that writers like you are having to compensate for an earlier feminist view, which said there are no differences between the sexes. We can all do the same thing. It's fine. Are you needing to compensate for that? Or, I mean, are you needing to recover the truth of biological sex in response to those earlier arguments? Or is it in response to the contemporary fluidity and relativism of the gender ideology? Yeah, I mean, I I think perhaps some of those feminist arguments about equality and participation are sort of now being slightly misunderstood. I don't think Mm. the idea was ever to deny biological sex. I mean, that's, I suppose, again, maybe people didn't see that coming. (laughs) Um, I I think it was to say, if you like, that in certain realms, like, you you know, politics and the economy uh, and social life, that women can participate as equals, yeah. you know, that they're, they're rational beings, they're moral beings, they're social beings, they're political beings, and that ha- they haven't always been treated in that way, yeah. right? So so I think the argument was was not that men and women are the same, although I do understand that, you know, that, that you, it could go to that extreme, but rather to say that there are forms of participation in which men and women should both be involved. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't mean that they're not fundamentally biologically different and in, indeed have different needs and you know particularly when women are pregnant or nursing or, or whatever so I don't know if that's a sort of retconning of mm. <laughs> a certain image of feminism um I I do talk a little bit about the the need perhaps for separate spaces and for men and women to have their own time with each other which I think is one of the things that has been destroyed by modernity and if you read Ivan Illich you know, who I'm a massive fan of Illich, um, this kind of subversive Catholic writer who wrote about medicine and gender and institutions very critically, um, brilliantly. Um, you know, he says that basically prior to industrial the industrial revolution and, and modernity, that men and women kind of had separate spheres, you know, that they were kind of um, compatible and they did different things. Um, but it was almost so common that no one really talked about it. Mm. It wasn't imposed in the way that we might have assumed um in you know in some kind of negative uh, oppressive way um you know and i think to see the whole of human history as as patriarchal oppression is not true and not fair to our <laughs> female and male ancestors at all so i think we have a very narrow image of what status and power is in our society and you know so the idea that oh we need more female ceos and that will solve the problem whatever the problem is you know i i'm obviously I think that's that's not a solution to any of our real needs <laughs> at all, which are, are much more uh, human and, and spiritual and, mm. and to do with uh, connection and community and affection and these, yeah, these sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I think I think we need to rethink our values. You know, what what is being valued uh, in the culture and pay attention to difference. I think mm-hmm. to eliminate sex difference is to basically concede everything to people who narcissistically demand things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to ask you about those people who narcissistically demand things. I, I really agree with your point about equality not being the same as sameness. And just because people are different and have different needs, obviously they should enjoy equality within society. And it's that part of the second wave, as you said earlier, which I think is incredibly important and really worth 
bringing into the 2020s, in fact, and and realizing it in, in the ways that it still hasn't quite been realized. But in relation to gender, the contemporary discussion of gender, you can't really discuss gender ideology or the gender idea as it currently exists without also talking about cancel culture. And you will know you know this from personal experience. Other people know it from personal experience too. But it can be very difficult to even write an opening sentence like yours, which is that men and women exist, without invoking the the wrath of people who think that words like men and women are problematic and you need to look beyond the gender binary and appreciate the existence of all sorts of genders and sexes and sex and gender identities. And there's an incredibly unforgiving attitude towards anyone who criticizes the excesses of the transgender movement or the gender ideology more broadly. So could you just tell us a little bit about your own experience with that cancel culture and why you think there is such a level of intolerance in these discussions in particular? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I guess personally, you know, I'm, I was on the left. I'm, you know, I was an activist. I was largely doing stuff around um, student protests and, and public order things. And I was supporting um, Alfie Meadows in particular, who's my boyfriend for a long time, who was, who was kind of, you know, accused of violent disorder after the police had nearly killed him. So I was very kind of involved in thinking critically and acting critically against parts of the state. And I mm. I suppose I didn't really realise what was going on. All this stuff was kind of happening <laughs> maybe after 2013, 2014. And I suppose initially it's presented as a kind of next part of the civil rights movement or something like this, you know, that it's in a continuum with concerns of the of the left, you know, and that, that if you're a leftist then you, you know, you support people in their identity and that that you know we should always be on the side of the most vulnerable and the most oppressed and i suppose i started experiencing quite a lot of cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. i guess with various ways in which the left were talking not only about this issue but also in terms of the way it was kind of punishing particular individuals in very public ways and i thought hey this isn't this isn't you know this isn't solidarity this mm-hmm. isn't uh, you know and I kind of became more and more uncomfortable with with various things that were going on. And I, I sort of knew that if I said anything, that I would be next in the firing line. Because once you identify the mechanism, if you like, then it kind of it will come for you. And um, indeed, so I, I wrote a Facebook post about how the Labour Party were interrogating women who were, because I used to be a member of the Labour Party, were interrogating, not not very active member, you know, various uh, women in the party who were asking questions about proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act. And I read some of the transcripts of the um, interrogations. They really were. And I thought, what the hell is going on? This is insane. You know, I mean, these women are being uh, basically shouted at in a small room for for thought crime. Mm. So I posted something and I said, like, what the F is going on in the Labour Party? This is like unbelievable. Um, We have to have a conversation about this. You know, there's a clash of rights here at the very least. You know, if we if we collectively decide to change the the meaning of the words men and women, everybody has a stake in that. It's not up to a small group of people to kind of bully their way through and and decide that you know everything's different now. And at that point, yes, then then you get kind of crazy people attached to you, and they start 
following everything you write and say and taking the worst bits out according mm. to them and making you look terrible and then email everyone who ever invites you to give a talk and tell people that you're a Nazi and a fascist and, you know, all these horrible things. And yeah, they're absolutely uh, obsessive and sort of deranged. And they're, they're actually, I would say, not necessarily themselves um, trans at all. Like mm. these are people who've kind of latched on to the, the activism side of it and almost like they've been giving a justification to behave sadistically or, you know, because it's like, well, you're allowed to attack this woman or that woman. And, and you know, we've seen loads of women in particular being, being attacked for not being, I don't know, kind enough, I suppose, not being the right kind of women. But I mean, often it's women doing the sadistic stuff as well, right? It's very, you know, and I think there's a lot of sadness actually in a lot of these people who are running around trying to ruin other people's lives, you know, and I, I did lose a lot of work at the time and I, I lost a lot of friends. And um, But to be honest, it was the right thing to do because I couldn't live with myself anymore. Like, you know, tacitly going along with something that I, I felt was uh, incredibly wrong. And, 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 you know, wrong also in the sense of the, the way in which children are being told that they can change sex and, and you know, the medicalization of, of young people's misery, I think is a scandal. Uh, and many, many people think this too now i think it will go down in history as as one of these unbelievable uh, medical scandals basically so i i think that's that's what's happened I, I, it's very very complicated this thing about the gendered soul i wanted to say something about this almost being like kind of gnostic like you know so the mm. catholic church used to talk about these heresies yeah. and, and and some of them were actually very similar in form which was like the idea that the the body is evil and the soul is pure and in a way you need to punish the body and th these are very excessive sort of ascetic moments that the catholic church was like no that's too far <laughs> you yeah. think you're being religious but actually you're being um, crazy and now i think in, in the absence of a kind of religious authority a lot of those gnostic tendencies have become kind of mainstream uh, in a way and I, I think it's absolutely terrible but that people think that only their soul their gendered soul is is right and their body is evil you know and that you can you know change your body in order to fit your soul you know i think this is this is very 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 strange thinking and i would like people to feel better about themselves you know i don't want people to walk around feeling horrible <laughs> and it is possible to feel better you know like to to you know get as fit as you can be to kind of do things that take your mind off yourself you know to be involved in community projects and and all of these things Yes, the, the Gnosticism of this movement, I think, is a very is very well described there, and and incredibly worrying too. That you know something that even the Catholic Church many many centuries ago considered to be regressive is now kind of making a comeback in in a new form. I think you you make a very strong point about the medicalization of children's misery in particular, and the optimistic side of me thinks that. In a few years' time, we will look back with absolute horror at the fact that um, young lesbians were given medication in order to correct their sex, in order to correct them, which strikes me as just homophobic and misogynistic. And I think the inability of some people on the left to see that is is deeply concerning. But just I've just got a couple more questions for you before we end. The first is. Um, how do you think this, what we've just talked about, relates to identity politics more broadly? So, you know, there's the 
the Gnostic idea of the kind of gendered soul and this is the most important thing and it has to be recognized and validated by external actors in order for it to be real. All You have all those things going on. Do you think it's the logical conclusion to identity politics, which you, you just mentioned, you mentioned earlier on how so much of left-wing politics now is not solidarity. And it strikes mm. me that identity politics is in many ways just completely antithetical to solidarity because it's precisely because it's about grouping people together according to their race, according to their sex, according to their sexuality, rather than according to their shared interests in a workplace or in the economy or in relation to class. So how much do you think identity politics is responsible for some of the problems we see on the left today? Yeah, I mean, I think I think fairly obviously, I think the left have, have lost the working class. You know, I think it, it you know, when the left sort of um, starts chastising people for having the wrong views and, you know, saying like, we hate you, vote for us. This is not a winning <laughs> strategy. And also, I think refusing to discuss, dis- you know, disagreements, you know, so if, if people have a different position on Brexit or immigration or whatever, or, you know, that the idea that you somehow just kind of, uh, abandon them and demonize people makes no sense from a from a classically leftist um, position at all. So, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think there's anything left wing about identity politics at all. I think it's part of um, a capitalist mindset, and I think it's yeah. I mean, it, it's been very very detrimental to people who are interested in actually making the world a better place. Okay, and my final question: How do you define yourself? Do you still consider yourself a left winger, or is that just such a useless term these days that has changed meaning so much that it it just doesn't capture anything important? Or do you have another word, or do you just prefer not to have any category at all now? Yeah, I mean, I think in the book I, I try to avoid it being dominated by a particular political position. Like in a way, it's sort of by default kind of centrist. You know, I wanted to write something that was reasonable. I do mention class in relation to uh, the opioid crisis, for Mm. example, and the deaths of of working class men in America. But it's not positioned as a a left-wing book in the same way that my first book was was in the sort of tradition of Marxist feminism, which, by the way, uh, is very much interested in biological reality and material reality. Uh, And that whole perspective seems to have vanished into thin air as well. So I don't know what's happened to all the Marxist feminists. Uh, there are still some, I should say. Uh, I know some of them. Uh, and actually, trade union women's, women have been involved in, in you know, protecting women's rights. So actually, I shouldn't be too quick to say. But as a theoretical position in the academy, it seems to have disappeared. Hmm. But in reality, there are still women who are so define themselves as socialist and Marxist feminists. So I'd say it's, I'm still in that tradition to some extent. But I think, you know, the actual, what the left has become bears no relation to the left that I felt as a teenager that I was part of, you know, which was, as I say, like humorous. It defended free speech and freedom of expression and freedom of association. It was um, keen to get involved in in uh, disagreement and and because the idea was that if you could argue people round to a position, right? That's you know why why else would you hold a position unless you sort of thought it was correct and that you could discuss it with other people and say, oh, have you thought about you know employment in this way? So I think I think ultimately I I suppose I would say that I'm a philosopher <laughs> first and foremost, yeah. which is to say someone whose orientation for whatever reason is always to kind of ask questions, and I'm very very uh, I don't know allergic to any position or group of people that try to shut down 
uh, free thought above all else. Because I, for me, there is nothing that is more important than the ability and the capacity to think freely, which everybody has. So I ultimately would defend that. And I would like that to be the situation that everyone is in, where they can think for themselves and defend their own thinking. And I think we see a lot of brainwashing (laughs) going on. And I think a lot of people are going to look back on the past few years at some point with a kind of horror. And and I think that we should be kind (laughs) to people who come round to a different point of view. One of the most amazing things about being alive is that you can change your mind. You know, I've changed my mind on things through thinking about it, through evidence, through reason, through discussion. So that's ultimately my position is, is the philosopher. Nina Power, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.